Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Richard A. Williams on Fixing Food. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. Amongst the many things you can do there, it includes sorting through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the food and beverage, history, or humor category for episode number 174 with Matt Siegel on The Secret History of Food. This is Matt Siegel, author of The Secret History of Food, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Richard A. Williams spent decades as a high-ranking official in the FDA whose expertise was food safety and nutrition. And he's just written a book about it all called Fixing Food. An FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. Richard, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. What was your goal with this book, Fixing Food? Well, after 27 years at FDA, uh, I began to look at the fact that we had not accomplished anything in food safety. Um, we uh, basically, we we had always said there was one out of six Americans getting sick from food every year, and that figure never changed. Uh, and then I looked at nutrition, which is really the bigger problem, and it was obvious we're going in the wrong direction. We now have something like 42% of the country is obese, and by 2030, that's expected to be fully half. So something was going wrong. Uh, what we were doing wasn't working, and I thought it was time to start looking at what might really work. What were you originally hired to do with the FDA back in 1980? So in 1980, uh, this was as uh, President Carter was leaving office and um, President Reagan was coming in. President Carter had put in an executive order that said he wanted all federal, big federal regulations analyzed for their costs and benefits. And um, Mr. Reagan came in and said, not only do I want them analyzed, I'm going to create a whole office to oversee uh, the regulatory agencies to make sure that they're doing it right. So I was the first economist hired to do the benefits and costs of food regulations. You said that the FDA's decline began late last century. Considering that you were there for the last 20 years of the last century, what exactly happened? Well, when you think about the FDA when it began, uh, it was for two reasons. One, uh, we knew that manufacturers were intentionally adding poisons to food, things like copper salts, trying to make it look better or make it last longer on the market. And that was really done by Harvey Wiley, who was uh, a, a chemist in USDA. The other side of the coin was that plants were filthy. And in the jungle, uh, that's what uh, the author described as rats running on meat, ending up in the meat. And so FDA really came about because of two obvious problems, intentionally adding poisons to food and filthy plants. And those problems haven't completely disappeared, but they're minimal. Today, the problem is we have pathogens like E. coli and salmonella that are ubiquitous in the food chain, very difficult to get rid of. Uh, and back in uh, 1906, when FDA was formed, we weren't worried about obesity. We were worried about people getting enough to eat. The problem is that FDA just doesn't have solutions for our current problems with their toolkit, if you will. Uh, and I think that's why it's it's in decline in, in the sense that they're not solving problems. 
One of the things that the FDA has been responsible for for a long time is keeping track of carcinogens, that is, ingredients that may cause cancer. Why is this idea of carcinogenic ingredients not necessarily a binary thing, though? Uh, because it's about risk. Uh, and risk is uh, it's, it's something that's, you know, it's not either it is risky or it isn't. It can be a little risky or, or a lot risky. And one of the problems that we have with carcinogens is, well, one, there are two problems. One is we have a very old law, the Delaney Clause, which says anything added to food uh, cannot cause cancer in man or animals. Okay, so animals being animal testing like rodents. Um, the problem is when that law was passed, and we knew it was a problem even then, we could detect carcinogens in a food in something like parts per million. Uh, and so today... The detection methodology has gotten so much better, we can detect things in parts per quadrillion. Wow. And what that means is any food you look at, you can find a carcinogen in it. And so this is particularly problematical for food or color additives. The second problem is how we decide something is carcinogenic. Um, and so we use a methodology called safety analysis, which essentially what it does is it takes a safe level and it divides that safe level by something like either 100 all the way to 10,000. So a friend of mine who was a toxicologist in FDA looked at this methodology and said, well, suppose we apply that to water. <laughs> what would be a safe dose of water? And he calculated that although you need two to two and a half gallons of water a day, by that methodology, anybody drinking more than eight ounces of water, a glass of water a day, that would be considered unsafe. <laughs> That's a, a great way to make that point. Why did you get called a Nazi baby killer? In the mid-1980s? <laughs> oh, well, so we had had a problem with infant formula. And, and if you're not breastfeeding, infant formula is, is going to be the way to go. It's the sole source of nutrition for babies. So it's incredibly important that it's safe. Um, and Congress was worried because uh, we knew there had been some problems in the infant formula industry. The biggest problem is whether or not babies can take milk, essentially lactose. And if they can't, uh, you move them to soy-based formula. And the only way to find that out is to feed them the lactose. But Congress passed a law and said, FDA, go ahead and regulate this industry. So we started having all sorts of reporting requirements and testing requirements. And my job was to look at the costs and benefits of those things. So I started to look at it, and it looked like the costs were adding up pretty considerably. But because the biggest problem was lactose intolerance, there weren't a lot of benefits to all of this uh, testing and uh, record keeping and so forth. So I went to one of our consumer studies. Is that, is, that because, is that because most babies just aren't lactose intolerant? Many are not. Okay. And so, and most of them will grow out of it. At any rate, uh, I looked at this and I went to one of our consumer studies people and she had been, this is her whole life. She studied uh, breastfeeding and infant formula. And I said, is this going to be a problem if this is very expensive? And she said, yeah, the expenses will be, all that cost will be passed on to consumers. And although some consumers get infant formula for free from the government, many that are still, you know, not well off have to pay for it. And when they have to pay for it and it becomes much more expensive, what they do is they extend it with water. So they mix more water in to make the infant formula go farther. And she said that creates gigantic nutritional problems for babies. So anything that's going to make it much more expensive is going to be a real problem. Well, I wrote that up. In a memo, this was not a smart thing to do. I was pretty new bureaucrat. <laughs> I go out there and I sent it to my boss and, and the guy who's writing the regulation and his boss. 
thinking, well, okay, you know, now we can sort of minimize the cost and make this make sense. And he came screaming into my office, threw open the door and said, what are you, a Nazi baby killer? And I said, did you read my memo? And he just shook it and threw it on my desk and stormed out. What was the ultimate solution there? Well, the solution was, I guess somebody paid attention to it because it took 20, I think it was about 26 years before we actually finalized the regulation on infant formula. Well, congratulations. You uh, you ultimately got your way there. Uh, what do ketchup and salsa have to do with a battle you waged over food standards? Well, food standards uh, were put into place in 1938, and it was because we were starting to make more packaged food, and women were starting to go into the workplace, and they were concerned that the manufacturers were going to have use new recipes with the same old names. And so they wanted to make it like mother used to make. All They wanted to, manufacturers to keep the same formulas. Well, we're still using those today. Um, and about half of all foods are standardized. Ketchup is standardized. There's one way to make ketchup. The federal government says this is how you have to make it. Salsa is not. So salsa has thousands of varieties to appeal to every kind of taste. Ketchup has one. So I thought this was kind of a waste of resources for FDA to just keep standardizing foods. And we're still doing it today. FDA is spending a couple of years now it's taken to decide whether or not almond milk should be allowed to be called milk. <laughs> uh, recently, they, they actually did something good. They got rid of the food standards for cherries. So there's not a minimum requirement for the numbers of cherries and cherry pie anymore. Wow! But there's still so many of these things on the market that are just crazy, like bottled water. There's a standard that says you have to call it borehole water if you bored a hole in the earth to bring the water up, as opposed to spring hole water if it just naturally bubbled up. Uh, is there any <laughs> rationalization in your head as to why somebody is wasting time putting that sort of policy in place? Or did it actually have value at some point earlier on? Earlier on, it had value because uh, originally we didn't have food additive laws. So one of the things that food standards did is they, they looked at things that you could add to food and make sure if there was an additive that across many foods, you wouldn't add too much of that additive hmm. where ultimately that the combination of, of all of those ingredients could provide a problem. That's no longer a problem. We now have food and color additive laws that operate independently of this. So ex with the exception of keeping recipes the same and making sure that incumbent manufacturers don't get a lot of competition, uh, I don't see a rationale for them. The late 1990s turned into a bit of a spending spree at the FDA, and this included a $43 million increase in the FDA's budget. Did this money go towards making our food supply safer, Richard? Not that I could ever tell. Uh, we had a lot of interesting meetings on this, um, and I, I described one of them in the book, which was my favorite one. A lot of uh, the office directors bought brand new furniture. They bought new computers for everybody. In fact, we had computers stacked up uh, in our basement um, because everybody had a new one. We didn't we didn't have any need for them. Um, but one lady, unfortunately, had been overseas. That was her job to go and negotiate things. And she came back. And after this huge spending spree, uh, Congress suddenly wanted to know what we were doing with the money. And she, her, her furniture was going to be delivered. And she walked into this meeting. Apparently, this caught her cold because uh, the deputy center director asked her, did she have furniture about to be delivered? And she goes, she started to say, well, yeah, but everybody else did. And <laughs> she was cut off and she goes, I'll cancel that. Uh, but we, we spent a lot of money, um, you know, gave a lot of money out to microbiologists and others. And 
if it ever did any good, I, I, I couldn't tell. Certainly, if you look at the data, we did not improve food safety as a result of all that expenditure. That's a shame. Now, uh, one of my proudest moments just for you from reading this book was uh, something you wrote about being among the first people at the FDA to recommend trans fats being included on food labels in the early 2000s. How was that suggestion initially received by your fellow policymakers and what ultimately turned the tide? So what actually happened was there was a, a movement to put to voluntarily put trans fats on the labels. Uh, and so on my staff, I had a, one, one nutritionist uh, epidemiologist on my staff, and she said, look, trans fats are probably much worse than saturated fats. So I think we ought to make it mandatory. Um, and the nutritionists in our nutrition office didn't want to have anything to do with this. They said voluntary is fine, but they didn't want to take the emphasis off of saturated fats. And as you know, that's somewhat problematical today. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, well, why don't Richard, why don't, you know, the lady on your staff, why don't we let her just go ahead and write the regulation? I said, that's fine. She'll be happy to do that. Well, she wrote it up and she wrote it as mandatory. Um, and they were furious about that. So they threw that out. But then as it turned out, um, over at the Office of Management and Budget, they had found out about this rule and they wanted to know when was it coming. They thought it was a great rule. And so they called the commissioner's office. The commissioner didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be mandatory. So that sort of overrode our Office of Nutrition and we ended up making it mandatory to be on the label. You point out a number of groups that are trying to influence food policies. Just how powerful are large food companies here? And do you have a good example of them shaping a policy that was much better for their bottom line than it was public health? Well, I I would say one would be uh, one of the larger rules that I worked on, which was the seafood safety rule. Uh, And here was a case where we were going to put in lots of requirements for a 50-year-old technology called hazard analysis critical control points. And that technology was invented by industry. It was used by industry going all the way back to the early 1970s. In fact, it was invented for the Apollo space program to make sure that the food was safe. But industry had been already using it you know, for decades. Um, when I looked at it, uh, it turned out that I didn't think it was going to be tremendously useful for a lot of small businesses. In fact, the biggest problem with seafood has always been raw shellfish, like raw oysters. Uh, there was nothing this technology would have done to make oysters any safer. Nevertheless, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, we went ahead and we did not exclude any of the small businesses when we passed that regulation. And I, I actually detailed one lady that was uh, had a small um, uh, seafood processing thing where she did smoke fish and she was driven out of business because of it. But that was, I mean, I'm sure there were others. That was just one that I was able to uh, document. Yeah, you make a great point that food regulation should maybe be a little bit more relative to the size of the company and its production capabilities than they are. And they certainly were uh, back with the example that you referenced. Uh, Has the FDA gotten better at that over the years? Uh, I would say no. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the original law goes back to 1980 and then it was uh, updated in 19, uh, I guess it was 86, where all regulatory agencies are required to look at the differential impact on small businesses versus large businesses. And if they can, to either exempt them from the rule or give them more time to comply, uh, FDA has not been one that generally uh, has taken that seriously. It gives small businesses the right to sue agencies, but they usually don't have the resources to do that sort of thing. 
So it basically requires the FDA to be more proactive than what they're capable of. And unfortunately, small businesses just don't have the money to fight it, huh? No, that's that's correct. And, uh, you know, what I found out from dealing with small businesses over the years was that they're petrified of the federal government. Yeah, uh, I, I held a, a meeting on our food labeling regulations. Meetings around the country, and I would always ask, you know, there'd be a crowd of several hundred people. Okay, do you have any comments, any questions for me? And nobody would ever say a word until the meeting ended. And then they would come up and talk to me and they would say, I'm not going to give you my name uh, because I don't want the FDA to know who I am. Actually, that bothered me considerably that that people were so afraid of the federal government. How have you seen bureaucrats peddle bad science to get their way within the FDA? Well, I think the one that was the most fun for me, <laughs> well, not fun so much, but we, we had Congress tell us uh, that we could regulate something called slack fill, but only if we found a problem. So what slack fill is, if you think about a cereal box and you open that box of cereal, and because the cereal is set a little, there's space between the top of the box and the cereal. It really doesn't make any difference. That space makes no difference because Cereal, like everything else, is sold like on a price per ounce basis, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't make any difference what the size of the box or the can is. Nevertheless, uh, we looked at it, and I had, had done some research. Actually, I had tried to negotiate a little bit with Canada over this kind of thing. But um, I said, look, this isn't a problem. You look at it, what's the price per ounce, and you can compare the prices. And so we had a big meeting, and I was all prepared, and I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll kill this without any issues whatsoever. So I made my case and I thought, okay, I've won. And then there was the woman who was charged with writing the regulation who uh, clearly wanted to do it. And so um, the person holding the meeting and the person in charge turned her and said, well, what do you think? And she said, well, I asked members of my pool party over the weekend and they all said it was a problem. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) We got the regulation. Wow. Oh man, that's hilarious. Okay, so uh, why does the FDA why does the FDA have so little to do with dietary supplements? Well, dietary supplement consumers really run the gamut of every kind of consumer. They're rich and poor, and they're educated and not education educated. People like dietary supplements, and they understand that if they were regulated like drugs, um, drugs have to be pre cleared before they can sometimes a decade and billions of dollars to get a drug onto the market. People that take dietary supplements didn't want that. They wanted to have this sort of broad array of of supplements that are perhaps not quite as safe uh, as drugs, but they're also not as concentrated as drugs. And so they lobbied Congress pretty heavily when the dietary supplement uh, law came around and said, you know what? Just make sure that they make them safely, but we don't really want them, re- you know, pre-approving them before they go on the market, regulating the ingredients. So essentially, what they did is they tied FDA's hands on dietary supplements um, in order to keep dietary supplements, you know, the way they are. I regard dietary supplements personally as hope in a bottle. Um, when nothing else works, try a dietary supplement. Hmm. Do you take any dietary supplements right now? I take uh, vitamins. Vitamins, okay. Uh, should the FDA have more of a role here? Uh, you know what? I don't really have an opinion on that. Um, mm. When when we looked at this rule, uh, it was very difficult to find that many problems that, that the FDA could fix if they did have more power. 
Uh, it was a huge problem. It was the last big regulation that I worked on before I left. Uh, and I had tried uh, to minimize it because we just really couldn't find enough problems, which would mean there were benefits to the rule to justify it. And when I went to, this was the Office of Nutrition again, and I went to the person um, that I most trusted in there, I said, you know what, we don't have a problem here. We don't have to regulate this industry. Why don't we just not do it? Because uh, there's not going to be enough benefits to justify the cost. And her answer to me was, but Richard, we have to get these guys somewhere. And that stuck with me because that was kind of the philosophy for a lot of things. We have to get these guys rather than, you know, uh, we're sure we can do some, we can solve actual problems and do it at a reasonable cost. But the philosophy was we got to get these guys. Nutritional labels on food which began in the mid-1970s and have really evolved since, are obviously a good thing. You were at least partially responsible for showing just how valuable they could be when the move was made to require labels on all packaged foods in the 1990s. So how'd you prove it was worth doing that? Well, so my philosophy at the time was, I, I went back and I kind of modeled it. I said, in order for this to be worthwhile, consumers have to read the labels, then they have to understand the labels, then they have to actually make healthier choices as a result of the labels. And so I got some data on that. Um, didn't have a lot of data on understanding the labels, but it, it, it turned out that if they had made different choices, um, there could have been significant health benefits. And I modeled that out and found out there was huge benefits, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, what I didn't know at the time uh, that I subsequently learned is that consumers never did understand labels. They hmm. didn't understand how to use them. They're very complex and very hard to use. And so those benefits never materialized. Uh, so where I was incredibly uh, excited about the labels when they came around, I thought this is really going to be something great. Uh, less so today. Yeah, it does uh, take a, a bit of an advanced understanding to understand everything that you're truly consuming. If you could make one change to food labels, what would it be to help uh, help the common folk basically understand what it is they're looking at? I wouldn't make a change to food labels. I would leave food labels as they are. I think there are new things coming on the market that will help people. First of all, in order to use the food label the way that uh, it's designed, you have to track all the things that are important to you. So are you tracking the amount of sodium, the amount of saturated fat that you're taking in, the amount of fiber? That's a lot of work. Second of all, you have to do the math to figure out, well, wait a minute, how much did I eat, actually eat in the last serving? So you have to know that. And in that serving, say it was a slice of pizza or something, well, how much saturated fat was in there? How much sodium and so forth? You have to know those things and track them in order to to get the right amounts. I don't see consumers doing that. I mean, some people, I think a few people are probably methodical about it. I don't think most people have enough time in their life to do that. So what I'm looking at are these new consumer technologies that are coming on, things that are like look like sort of maybe a Fitbit. Hmm. And they would track this stuff and they would tell you based on your own personal characteristics, meaning your genetic profile, your microbiome, your health status, how much you exercise and so forth, your environment, Here's what you should be eating and give you ideas about things you should be eating and hopefully things also that would match up with what you like to eat to help people um, lead healthier lives. So I don't think that real progress is going to be made by keep continuing to fiddle with the food label. I think we, we ought to start looking now at these at these new devices 
That is an interesting idea here. I do also wonder, though, if something as simplistic as the way a lot of European countries label their food, where you really color code it, and if something is that bad for you, one particular ingredient or one measurement, then perhaps it is listed in red or yellow or green, uh, just based on the average American diet. But I guess to your point, everybody is a little bit different, so that's not going to apply to everybody. Now, isn't there a margin of error allowed on these labels? And if so, do you think that's a fair number? Yeah, there's a margin of error because there has to be. I mean, if you think about the vitamin C content of, say, a tomato or something, it can vary dramatically. Uh, so there's only so much you're going to do. But, but given that it's so hard to track these things anyway, I don't think the margin of error is going to make that much difference. Mm. Um, it, it, it's just that's just a that's just a fact. Why did America start to become fatter in the early 1980s and why have obesity rates continued to accelerate decade after decade, Richard? It's a great question. It's one that I think everybody wants to know. It's definitely happened around the 1980s. Um, Certainly, uh, we saw more people eating food away from home. Uh, at least by my lights, that was one of the big things uh, because people have uh, essentially bigger meals uh, and people started eating more meals. There was more, I think, increase in some of the junk food that people were eating. People were definitely taking in more sugar. Um, uh, I know about a couple hundred years ago, people consumed on average two or three pounds of sugar a year. Uh, today that the average amount of sugar that's consumed is about 153 pounds a year. So there's a lot of changes in the food supply. And um, certainly we've become more obese. The answer to it by FDA uh, was use the food label. And so one of the things they've recently done, they thought, oh, this will fix it is they put calories in bold. Hmm. Well, that's not going to fix the problem. Uh, even tracking calories is difficult, not to mention everything else that you have to track. So again, I'm looking to um, the new technologies like better foods uh, that will help us to solve this problem. What's the difference between nutrition science and nutrition policy? Nutrition science, well, first of all, nutrition policy has to take into account a lot more than just nutrition science. It has to take into account the psychology of people's eating, has to take into account the economics, has to take into account the law uh, and and, um, and, and essentially, and politics as well. So there's a lot that goes into nutrition policy. Nutrition science is just about the diet disease relationships. And nutrition science, unfortunately, is one of the more prob problematical sciences that we have. And I'll just give you one example about why it's such a problem. In order to know what a specific diet or a specific food, whether or not it, it causes a disease, you have to know what people eat. And the way we find out what people eat is we ask them. What did you consume in the last 24 hours and how much of it did you consume? Well, we've gone back and looked at those surveys and found out that 60% of people don't report eating enough food to stay alive, which means we're starting with bad data. So what people do is they just sort of say, well, I think they probably ate this. Uh, and it, it leads to bad studies and 80% of all nutrition studies use that data. Yes, that helps explain why Chapter 23 is titled Epidemiology People In, Garbage Out. All right, I wanted to uh, end today's uh, conversation, Richard, by asking you about some common terminology in our food supply today and just get your thoughts on the worth or lack thereof of each. So let's start with the idea of organic. Um, if, you, if you have a lot of extra money and you want to buy food that are organic, 
that's great. It's not healthier. In some cases, uh, it's it's actually responsible for more food recalls. Um, but generally, I don't think it does that much harm. It just doesn't do any good. Buying local. Uh, I don't know why people would buy local. I guess if you feel like you should support people in your local community, yes. But um, it's really, it doesn't, again, it's not healthier. The great thing about food is that we can buy globally. I think that's a wonderful thing, which is which means we have fruits and vegetables available all year round as opposed to only when uh, the local market serves them. So the, buying globally has been a great thing um, for people. Grass-fed and pasture-raised. Yeah, I'm not into the, the meat uh, industry that much. Uh, meat is regulated by USDA, and so that's not something that FDA gets into, nor did I. Glyphosate. Glyphosate, uh, in fact, I'm uh, chairman of the board for Center for Truth and Science, and that's one of the uh, compounds that we're going to be looking at. Uh, actually, we've already let a contractor start looking at that. It appears to me uh, as though the data is going to show that it's it's not as dangerous uh, as it has been made out to be. And um, if so, we'll let people know. Lab-grown meat way into lab-grown meat. I think it's it's absolutely essential for the future. We've got a growing population, world population. We're going to need to expand the food supply dramatically by 25 to 50%, perhaps by 2050. Uh, lab-grown meats are gonna be the way to go. They are going to be safer, more nutritious, better for the environment. Uh, obviously, we won't have any uh, problems with the treatment of animals. Um, they're not going to totally replace meats, but I think they are definitely going to play a huge, huge part in our diet. What about irradiating foods? So irradiating foods is one of the best ideas we had. In fact, the Army was considering irradiating all foods back at, uh, in World War II. Unfortunately, irradiating foods has been trashed by activists who don't understand it. Um, they sort of tried to tie it to nuclear explosions. When I looked at it, it turned out irradiating foods is great for food safety. It would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives had we started irradiating foods back 50 years ago. We didn't do it. And I know people are concerned, well, wait a minute, I don't want to eat irradiated food. That'd be bad for me. And I was, I was concerned about the same thing when I first heard about it. So I talked to a guy in the lab and I said, well, really, how much radiation is left in the food after that's done? He goes, well, Think about if you're sitting in a chair outside and you stand up, you're that much closer to the sun. That's how much radiation we're talking about. Yeah, people should definitely not Google how much radiation you're exposed to when you're on a, an airplane, if uh, that's that big of a concern. <laughs> now, does irradiation zap uh, nutritional value of foods too, though? Because that's, uh, that's one critique I've always heard of that practice. Yeah, my understanding is that that is not the case. Okay. Um, also, I mean, people should be aware that a little bit of radiation turns out to be actually good for you, not bad for you. That's true. Uh, so uh, Carl Sagan once wrote, and you quote him in this book, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that it has taken us. Once you've given a charlatan powers over you, you almost never get it back. Why does this quote mean so much to you, Richard? 
because I think a lot of what goes on with FDA and, and food is a myth. Uh, so we hear it every time there's a government shutdown. Oh, my gosh, if we shut down the government, food's going to become unsafe because FDA won't be overlooking plants. FDA inspects food plants maybe uh, on average about once every six years. And I liken that to uh, if you had a, have a child and you say, I want you to keep your room clean. And I'm going to be back once every six years to check to see that you've done it. <laughs> So, no, uh, most of the inspections of plants are done by business to business or about eight for, for the government, about 85 percent of them are done by the state. So if FDA shuts down, your food will not suddenly become unsafe. You also write, and this is the final question here, that the problem for the FDA has always been how the FDA can make existing foods safer and educate consumers to make healthier choices. If you could do one thing to address each, what would you do starting with making existing foods safer? So I think one of the things that I'd like to see FDA do is to em embrace the new food technologies and not try to stand in the way of them using you know their existing authorities. But because I think that's where that's where the, the world is going is we really need these new technologies. One of the things that FDA can start to do more of, they're doing it now, but they can do more of it. In order for these technologies to work, like the consumer technologies that will try to help you decide what to eat. We need better biomarkers and a biomarker is something like your blood pressure or your weight but but also sort of more intricate biomarkers we need better biomarkers and we need them validated that's something fda could be great at and should do a lot more of i think that will help make these new products work better richard williams is a 27-year veteran of the food and drug administration who specializes in economic and risk analyses in food safety and nutrition and he's now the author of a book about his experiences helping shape policy in the fda and opinions on the best way forward with these things it's called fixing food an fda insider unravels the myths and the solutions richard thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this important book thank you trey it was enjoyable Join me next time when I speak with sci-fi, fantasy, and historical nonfiction author Mike Cole on The Bronze Lie, shattering the myth of Spartan warrior supremacy. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.